listening to the Arise Church podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. Consumers think of McDonald's as being in what? The restaurant business, a burger restaurant. True or not true? I love it. He said, I love it. (laughs) But in the business world, McDonald's is considered something entirely different. While the chain has some 36 thousand restaurants around the world and has sold over a billion burgers, 85% of their franchises are just that, franchises owned by someone else, and they get a percent and a half or so off of the sale off of each one of the hamburgers. But on the flip side, McDonald's owns outright all the land of its 36,000 restaurants around the world. McDonald's own thousands of iconic pieces of real estate. I always say they got the best street corners in the world, like Martin Luther King and Long Beach Boulevard, where I'm from, you know? It's like, how you get Atlantic and Rosecrans? That kind of thing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You guys think about where McDonald's is in your neighborhood. That's fine. Just let me gloat a little bit. But McDonald's owns thousands of iconic pieces of real estate around the globe. From New York City's Times Square to London and Tokyo. Hmm. Everywhere, McDonald's has ventured around the world, buying up prime real estate. Franchisees pay McDonald's a cut of their food sales, a small cut, but a much larger portion of McDonald's revenue comes from the rent that they receive on their real estate. After all, the rent in Times Square has never been cheap, but a Big Mac still is. (laughs) Really think about that. The Founder, which was a 2016 film about McDonald's history, explains their business this way with a dynamic succinctness. He says, you don't build an empire off of 1.4% cut of a 15-cent hamburger. You build it by owning the land on which the the burger is cooked. As the CEO would tell you, McDonald's main business is real estate. I bring that up to say that oftentimes, because of the way things look or things that are happening, we can forget or maybe be ignorant of or unaware of what the true and main business of an organization is or an organism or a body. Mm. And so I ask you this morning, what is the main business of the church? Mm. Think about that. What is the main business of the church? David Livingstone was a missionary who traveled to multiple African countries. He figured out that since God was so committed to his mission in the world, nothing could be more important, not even his career as a physician and a medical doctor. And so while studying medicine, he had also attended some theological lectures and figured out that the main business of the church is mission. The main business of the church is mission. And so even though he was born in Scotland, he went on and died in Zambia, seeking to reach 
those who had not yet heard the gospel. Acts chapter 13, where we are today, is where we first get introduced to the Christian idea of mission. It's progressively revealed to us throughout the book of Acts. But here in this chapter, we see the first intentional mission of the church that would forever change the world. Acts chapter 1, all the way down to chapter 12, have been explaining to us what was happening with the apostles in and around Jerusalem, and it started to go out into Judea and Samaria. Well, we were seeing the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, and now turning into chapter 13, the rest of the book is about the missionary journeys of one man and his team. His name is Saul, for now. And we will go on to later understand his name is Paul. But it became about mission, mission around the world from Acts 13 and on. So would you read with me just the first few verses in Acts chapter 13? Verses 1, 2, and 3. And then I want us to see just a few or make a few observations about this. This should be a simple and plain, pretty practical message for us. And even timely as we think about where we've been as a church. Acts 13 verses 1, 2, and 3 reads this way. Actually, let me back up. Acts 12, verse 25. Acts, nope, let me back up. Acts 12, <laughs> verse 24. This is all happening in a moment. I didn't plan this. Verse 24 in Acts chapter 12. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from, their Jeru uh, from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. What service? Well, we should back up again. End of chapter 11, verse number 29 in chapter 11 says, The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So back to the end of chapter 12, verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them, this time John, whose other name was Mark. And so now we get to Acts chapter 13, where we will be. Now there, we're in the church at Antioch, which is where they returned to, prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called to them, or called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. As we think about what the main mission of the church is, I want us to make very brief, quick observations about those three verses in the context of what's been happening in our journey through the book of Acts. The first thing that we should see when we think about mission, when we think about the main business of the church, when we think about what this church is engaged in, is that God, through the Holy Spirit, is sovereign over the mission. That sounds simple and basic, but the truth is, is that we might want to cook the hamburgers different. We might want to fry the fries a little bit longer. We might want to supersize and so on and so forth when we think about the local church and our place in it. But we need to first recognize that God through the Spirit is sovereign over the mission of the church. Why do I say that? 
Well, in Acts chapter 13, it's very vague. It's unclear. All he said is, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. No one, they got this call just like uh, Abraham. It's like, go to the place that I'll tell you. I don't even know where that is. And you want me to say yes? But God came up with the mission. The Spirit laid it on the hearts of the people and even spoke to them, presumably, presumably through one of the prophets or teachers, the leaders there in the church, and said, set apart for me these two for the work that I called them to. When I say sovereign over the mission, that just means that he's the one who controls it. That he's the one who has the authority to make it, to change it, to shift it. He is the one who comes up with the mission. I don't see it here that uh, it says Saul and Barnabas came back with their friend John Mark and they decided, hey, we got another idea. Mm. We want to go and do this. We want to go and do that. We want to move here. We want to move there. No, it says that the Holy Spirit authoritatively called the church to set aside those first quote-unquote missionaries. He comes up with the mission and he also calls out the missionaries. If you ever think about something, missions, we talk about mission and evangelism and those things. We talk about it a lot here at the church because honestly, we want to shift the paradigm so that we understand that if Sunday morning, this two hours or so sometimes, a little bit longer, I know, right? But there's food involved. <laughs> if this is the totality of your relationship and your engagement with the church, you're missing it. You're totally missing it. But when we look at Acts chapter 13, we should under, understand a couple of things. Missions should absolutely weigh heavily on the heart of every single Christian since it's at the kind of main business of God and it is our main business as the church. We should all be thinking about mission. We should all be thinking about how to get the gospel to the ends of the earth because Acts 1.8 gave us our thesis statement and our commission to do what? Take the gospel as far as we can go, right? We should all be thinking about that. But what we learn here is that he actually chose Barnabas and Saul. He gifted them a specific way. He called them out with some specificity. It's on God's heart. It should be on our, our heart. But not everybody is a goer. Some of us are senders, and others of us may be disobedient. That's what John Piper would say. He said, you're either a goer, a sender, or a disobedient. Those are options. It's like, wow, you know? <laughs> not all of us are going to be called to leave our own place and our own people to take the gospel to those in other cultures. It does take a special calling from God, but we all participate in our prayers, in our sending, in our affirmation, in our funding of the mission. Mm. It does take a special calling, and God said he called them to it, exercising his sovereignty and control over the mission he did. Spurgeon would define a call as an intense and an all-absorbing desire. I remember when I first started feeling that way about ministry. I had always had a pact with God. I don't want to touch ministry with a 10-foot pole. That's not me. That's not my thing. I didn't want to be in ministry. I didn't want to be. I didn't want to preach. I didn't want to teach. I didn't want to. 
do anything that was formal in the local church. And God began to give me an, ins an insatiable desire for loving and praying for and caring for people and shepherding. And just having me like, <laughs> I thought I was nosy, right? It's like, why am I always caring about what people's going on in their life? What is this happening? And it took for some older folks in the church to explain and to walk with me through that process. But the point I just wanted us to see in his sovereignty over the mission is that the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me. And when he's saying set apart, that means to devote. So he said, take Barnabas and Saul and devote them to the mission that, or to uh, the, the, the ministry that I will call them to for the purpose that I had. They were to be devoted to the Lord first and then to be devoted to that which he had called them he came up with the mission, he calls out the missionaries, and he also chooses the means. It's funny that Barnabas and Saul are the ones who are selected. You know why? Because they are the ones who would otherwise be the best of the best in that local church. Just humanly speaking, we got to be honest. They're the most gifted. They're the most experienced. They've been around a little bit, right? They're probably looked to. And they are the ones who God decides to say, send them out. God tells them, hey, send your best. <laughs> He says, send your best. The most gifted men in that church, and God took them and sent them out. It's safe to say they needed them. Don't you think? Don't you think that new, brand new local church, we saw it bring, we saw it sprout up in Acts chapter 11. We saw it just came about in Antioch, and it was happening like gangbusters. People coming to faith from all different sides of the city, all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of cultures, and then all of a sudden God says, I want you to set the two that you have been looking to and depending on, and I want you to send them out. It's interesting that in that invitation, they put their trust in God and not in man, and they obeyed him. It says the church is all engaged here. Barnabas and Saul didn't even come up with their own plan and do their own thing. That's how we know, again, that he is sovereign over it all. He even used the whole church to affirm it all, but... Suffice it to say, the verb that we have, um, uh, they put their trust in God, not in men, and they obeyed him. But the verb we have translated as, as four different words, they sent them off, is just one word, one compound word. It will be pronounced this way, apaluo. Sounds like something, doesn't it? What'd you say? That's all you back there. Apaluo. <laughs> If you think about what we understand about those who are, would be apostolic, the apostle is that person who would be devoted to carrying the mission to new places and into new frontiers. But behind the way that this word is written, it actually means I want you to release. It says they sent them off. But it carries the connotation of setting free or releasing. It implies the letting go of an existing bond for a greater good. When they sent them off and they did that out of obedience to what God had called them to, they did it for the greater good and it was a releasing. I want to tell y'all right here from the front, I'm ready to release some people for this reason. I'm ready for us to send people all over the world for the gospel. We are always sending people out, people moving, transitioning, things like that. I am 100% ready 
for us to be sending people out for these reasons. Because the main business of the church is mission. And God still has some 7,000 tribal groups, language groups on the face of the earth that have never heard the gospel, have no Bible in their language. And so it's still time to go. And if you don't want to cross the seas, you can go across the street. But we want to send some people in this same way. This is the first time that we actually begin to see that churches get planted. Conversions happen as a result of an intentional mission. I'm trying to teach us here. I want us to understand that this was the result of movement, not just a move. You know, up to this point, they've been moving all over the place. Why? To save themselves. Persecution sprang up, so they fled. That's how they got to Antioch in the first place. But this time, God caused them to actually send out, and they're leaving comfort, friends, family, good. Now they're leaving all that, leaving their kin, and leaving all the comfort they have for the sake, not of saving themselves, but of saving souls. God is sovereign over the mission because it is his, and through the Spirit, he calls us to respond and be quick to obey him if he would say, hey, I'm discerning that Al is, right? And through the Spirit, we can all affirm that. It's wonderful for us to be engaged in that. I hope this builds up a little bit for us today. The second thing, really quickly, is that God, through worship, is central to the mission. So he's sovereign over the mission, but he's also central to the mission. Here's what I mean by that, very simply. If we want to be those who would say we are about the first and, and we're minding our main business and we are a missional church and we are about mission and so on and so forth, you know what? We will be a worshiping church. God is central to it. It's not about, like, did we have, uh, you know, however many kids out there on Thursday? It's not about our Easter egg hunt and our soup kitchen and our food pantry and so on and so forth. Those things are all toward what? Seeing people come to worship God. Mm-hmm. And worship, it's interesting. I'm thinking about Abraham now. Uh, I guess the, the movie is out, right? And Sean was telling me about this movie that's out. It's the only son. But when Abraham said to his servants, you guys stay here. And me and Isaac, the boy, are going to go up and worship. You know what he wasn't going up there to do? Pick up a <laughs> guitar. guitar. <laughs> Pull up some phone lyrics on his, I mean, some, some song <laughs> lyrics on his phone and sing a song. He was obeying what God called him to do, which was to sacrifice his own son. He was quickly worshiping God as a devoted person who came to say, I will serve you and you alone. See, God's sovereign over, but he's also got to be central in it. It's more than singing good songs and sitting in great services. It's about serving God. That's what worship is. The text has told us that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, if we want to invite the Holy Spirit to lead us, we will be a worshiping people, not a strategizing people. Not a really gifted, kind of, you know, savvy people. 
will be a simple people who know that they have a dependence on God and need him. See, this is why, for me, it's been a joy to call us to an all-church fast. Some of us really, like, working through that. We've been fasting now for, I don't know, five, six weeks, and we're thinking about certain things. And, and when you really think about what that means is I'm just giving up something good so that I can pick up something greater, something that may be good for me that I would like to have. I'm saying I want to pursue something greater, which is the worship of God. I'm not asking him necessarily to bless me, to give me this, to give me that. No, I'm connecting deeper with him because I know I deeply need him. Yeah. Somebody told me that they had been fasting from sugar so that they'd be reminded of the sweetness of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I love that. While they were worshiping and fasting, it was while they took time to worship the Lord that he gave them a world-changing mission and raised up some world-changing missionaries. If we want to be those who would say, yes, our main business is, and we're committed to uh, the, 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 the mission for us is central, no, God is going to be first and foremost central to that mission, if that makes sense. The third thing, real quickly, is that God's glory is the substance of all mission. Now, you, you, you'd be hard-pressed to find that in the text necessarily, right? Set apart from you, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I called them. And then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. But if you would follow Barnabas and Saul to Cyprus, like we will do in our dialogues and discussions later on this month in our gospel communities, or if you turn the pages and see all the places that they would go on this journey and the next journey, what you would see is they went about with their main goal being to spread the glory of God, to, to get his name to be known in all the earth. They went everywhere, not preaching their own, right, uh, agendas, not trying to promote themselves. They went and they spread the word, God is good. And in Christ, he has redeemed and restored all things all who love him and are called according to his purpose the aim the goal of all their mission was to get the glory of God to be spread across the earth I have a bunch of verses I just want to read to you to help you understand what informed them and how this is what it always had been. God covenantally was always about this. It was not just about one group. It was about all people. Habakkuk 2 verse 14 says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know what that means? Wow. It's got to get outside of Israel and Jerusalem. It's got to get outside of just the uh, few couple of people. He said that the glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to be as the waters cover the sea. Wow. And verses 18 and 20 in that same chapter says, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? So you know who uh, had a bunch of idols? All these Gentile nations who are being reached now in Antioch. You have people from all over Asia, remember? Africa. And all of a sudden, the Gentiles have been welcomed into the commonwealth of faith. And Rebecca had asked, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it in a metal image? It's <laughs> a teacher of lies. For his maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. 
Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silver <laughs> silent thing, arise. <laughs> Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. Verse 20, but the Lord in his holy temple, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. When Rebecca said all the earth, he's talking all the families of the earth. This is about that spreading that happens and goes out from here to the ends of the earth. Psalm 96 and 3, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Everybody, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day and declare his what? His glory among the nations. When we go out and we're with five-year-old kids and we're breaking open Easter eggs and we say, this one has that in it and that one has that in it and get the last one. This one is empty because the tomb was empty. <laughs> right? I mean, it doesn't go like that, but fam got a good one, I promise you. When we get to that point, you know what we're doing? We're declaring, we're declaring to them the glory of his great name. Amen. Amen. That's what we're doing. And we're telling of his marvelous works among all the peoples. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord, he made the heavens. That's the message. The glory of God is the chief goal of all missions activity. See, there was a time when you and I did not think about how to glorify God. We only wanted to magnify ourselves. When we came to understanding that Jesus was the son of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. And that included my sin. Yeah. Oh, and that, and that time I surrendered my life to his. He calls me to be totally transformed. And you know what happens after that? I'm about his glory. Not about my own glory. I want to declare his glory. As the gospel goes to all nations and as God saves people from every tribe and tongue and nation, it's all to bring more glory to his name. Amen. Some of us know that John Piper has been famously quoted saying missions is the ultimate or not the ultimate goal of the church. That the glory of God is the ultimate goal of the church because it's the ultimate goal of God. He goes on and he says worship is the goal and the fuel of missions and missions exist because worship doesn't. See, we want to see people come to worship him to glorify him, to magnify him. Missions is our way of saying, he continues, the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or a tribal or a national or an ethnic privilege. It's for all people. Yeah. It's for everyone. And that's why we go, because we've tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus and we want all the families of the earth to know that they are included in that. I looked also to Romans chapter 15. In Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 12, Saul, who would then be Paul, very much toward the end of his journeys, and he's seen a lot. He's reached into some pretty far places, including Rome. And he says this, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Christ is the hope even of the Jews. 
and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Christ is the hope even for the Gentiles. He's the hope for both groups, he says. As it is written, quoting 2 Samuel, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's glory. And again it is said, quoting Deuteronomy, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, the Psalms say, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. It's all about his glory. And again, Isaiah says in verse number 12 of Romans 15, he quotes, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, he says. It's all about the progress of the worship of God everywhere, on every corner, and in every corner, all the four corners of the earth. It's all about the glory of God. Now this happens as a church is brought together very supernaturally by God. What's interesting to me is another observation, I think, can, that we can easily miss it, but we should, um, we can't overstate it. Luke went into great detail about the diversity of the leaders in that church, did he not? I just kind of sped right past it. They were in the church, Antioch, prophets, and teachers. So there's a plurality of leaders. It's not just one person. Uh, they don't have just the same gifts. Right? And it says, among them was Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Manan and, Her uh, and, uh, and Saul. Barnabas is the first person that's listed on the, uh, in the list. We already know him. He's a familiar name. It's been being said to us about Barnabas since Acts chapter 4 that he was a good man. He even sold everything and gave, right? So that the church would prosper and there'd be no needs that were there. But he's described as a Jewish man who has a Levitical heritage. Mark that for yourselves for a moment. Barnabas is a Jewish man with a Levitical heritage. Geographically, he's Cyprian of, of, from birth, which is an island country off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And culturally, he would have been in the Roman context. His background is a rich Jew living on a Roman-governed island. Then you got Simeon, who was called Niger. He was African ethnically and culturally, and geographically he was from a different place than the rest of the leaders. The text tells us that he was called Niger. This is an indication. Niger actually, in Latin, actually literally means black. He is nicknamed by his skin color. And before we get like crazy about that, what we need to see is that Luke is going into detail to tell his friend, you had this Jewish rich man and then you had this African man. And they're both leaders in the church. And not only them, you had Lucius of Cyrene. He's third and he was from the North African, uh, north, uh, northeastern side of Libya, which is where that is. So when Jesus, right, you think about when he was on his way. Up to the cross, there was a man from Cyrene who was forced to carry it for him. And eventually, people from Cyrene would travel to Antioch to share the gospel. Do you remember that? Acts chapter 11, verse 20. Let me just say this. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also. Can we not forget, if you were in our gospel communities the last few weeks and we discussed this, this is a big deal. There was these 
individuals from this area who said, I'm not only going to talk to the Jews, I'm going to go talk to everybody. Mm -hmm. And now this church has grown up. Mm -hmm. This individual would have been one of those first people. Wow. Even if he wasn't, it was his people that God used to bring the gospel to this local church that is now sending off Barnabas <laughs> and Saul. And then there's Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Did you all follow that we're walking through and seeing who Herod the Tetrarch is? He had John the Baptist beheaded. He tried to kill Jesus. He was a lifelong friend of his. And you can't even be a lifelong friend of somebody in the Herodian dynasty, which is a royal family, without doing what? Having some kind of aristocracy yourself. And then there's Saul. Saul, the most familiar today. We know he became Paul, this Pharisee who was zealous for the destruction of the church, but that God had chosen to carry his name before the Gentiles. So among the leadership of this local church, these five men are listed from a variety of backgrounds. And what we find is a Jewish man who grew up on a Roman island, two men from Africa, a socially elite man who grew up in Jerusalem with those who would be the enemies of the church and the gospel, and an educated Pharisee who previously sought to destroy the church. You know what that means? God can save anybody. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> God yeah. can change yeah, anybody. So God can use anybody. Yeah. <laughs> That's the good news today. This passage teaches us that the diverse place of Antioch had a diverse church and some diverse leaders that rivaled even the diversity of their community. And the ministry of that local church wasn't an isolated ministry for one people group. Mm. It was for the multi-ethnic peoples yeah. of the world. Yeah. And so God didn't say, hey, let's go and try to uh, figure this out and do this diversity thing just in a very like cheesy way. No, he brought people from all those different sides, yeah. socioeconomic, yeah. cultural, yeah. ethnic, all of it, brought them all together, created a church for himself that would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. God is the one who establishes the church, and he's the one with the mission. And the main mission, or our main business of the church, is mission in so much as it carries forward the idea that we want to see God worshipped. Yeah. Yeah. When God establishes missional churches, they're made up of all kinds of people. They're led by all kinds of people. Mm who set their own preferences aside in worship of him to take the gospel to the nations for the praise of his glory. Here's the hope. I know some of us have been doing evangelism to children for 30 years. Here's the hope, though. The hope is that God has been working in your heart over the last 30 years. Over the last 30 days of you, as you fasted. Or the last 30 minutes of me talking. The hope is that God is working in your heart, calling you deeper and inching you closer to even understanding your station and your vocation in life as a post for you to do mission. To tell the good news about who he is, that more people would declare his name and the glory of his name and come to worship him. God is bringing you closer to spreading his glory in all the earth as your first and 
and utmost goal, your chief aim. If God is in covenant with his people among the nations, and if he loves and is seeking to reach people all the way to the ends of the earth, then it makes sense that he would have done this. There was no other way. The persecution came, a scattering, all kinds of suffering. Paul and Barnabas just got back with the news. We did what you all sent us out to do. We took relief to the brothers while we were there. James, the brother of John, was beheaded by Herod. And Herod's nephew, Manan, would have heard yet again that his childhood friend was opposing the church and putting Christians to death. And yet he stayed focused. They had lost another one. But he stayed committed and devoted to the mission. Even to the degree that Paul and Barnabas just got back. And now they're being called to be sent out. And they affirm that. David Livingston, I mentioned him a minute ago, once said that God had only one son and he made him a missionary. Mm -hmm. And so I'm prepared to go anywhere provided that it be full. Mm -hmm. That's the attitude of a person who is devoted to the mission of God. That should be our attitude. Mm -hmm. Not that you are the kind of person who's not even dependable or become flaky because you're just jumping all over the place, but no, are you available or is it just unthinkable that you